If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. We are now into, well, into chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 17 in just a moment. But first, I need to tell you to do something. Take out the trash, sweep the kitchen, and then clean up your room. How many times growing up did you hear orders like that from your parent? Or how many times have you given that order or something like it to your own children? Well, why do parents task their children with chores? Well, the obvious answer from a child is that, well, parents want a slave to do things for them. But what children don't understand is that there are reasons we have them do chores beyond the chores themselves. Sure, it's nice to have a kid clean their own room, but that's not why we have kids do chores. Yes, the room needs to be kept clean or at least where it is identifiable as a bedroom. But there are important reasons for chores, more important reasons for chores than having a clean room in and of itself. We have our kids do chores so that they can learn how to clean up after themselves. They do chores to learn skills, responsibilities, time management, discipline, and even to develop some sort of work ethic. Now, kids don't understand that until they get older. Instead, they'd rather complain and whine and then more often than not get punished for it. But unfortunately, even as adults, we often behave the same way with the commands of Scripture. Oftentimes, we don't want to obey Scripture because it seems like just a bunch of rules. But the truth is that God has a purpose for every command that far exceeds our understanding. He knows what is best for us in every way, and so we need to trust him even when we don't understand a command. So God has tasked us with duties to serve his, uh, his purposes. And as we move through this text, we're going to see that the main idea for this passage is that because God is king, we must evangelize. So that's really going to be the focus. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for your wisdom and your guidance as we look at a text that is in many ways difficult and in many ways debated as to how we are to follow it. So, Lord, I do pray that you would be with us, give us a spirit of patience, a spirit of understanding, and help us to understand your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. So, verse 11 actually begins a new section in the book of 1 Peter. And this new section is introduced by the word, by the term, Beloved. So while the saints reading this letter would be beloved to Peter, that is not what beloved refers to here. So if you remember back to verse 10, verse 10 ended the previous section by explaining who you are as the church. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Therefore, you are God's beloved. 
So Peter wants you to understand that who you are as God's people is the foundation for everything that he is going to say in this section. Everything from chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 11 is really one big section. So this is essentially one long paragraph on how to behave, how to live as Christians. So Peter tells us that he is beginning this new section by calling us beloved. That's the marker. And this section is not going to end until we arrive at chapter 4, verse 12, where he will again call us beloved. And so this word acts as a marker for us as we prepare to move into a new topic. So once Peter describes us as beloved, he moves on to the main idea he wants to get across. He uses one phrase which governs the rest of the text for this morning. In the ESV, Peter urges us. Other translations say beseech or exhort, appeal, and some even say beg. And those are good translations. They give a sense of urgency and the importance to the command. So Peter is strongly encouraging us to do two main things in this text. And these two things will be our main points for this morning. So the first point is that because God is king, we must be honorable. Verses 11 through 12. So Peter first reminds us of our status in this world. We're no longer focusing on the doctrine of the church or on what our identity as believers is. We're moving from an internal focus on the church and the believer to the nature of the believer in the world. So here, he reminds us of what he called us all the way back in the first verse of the book, elect exiles. So in very similar terminology, Peter says that we are sojourners and exiles. We are not in our homeland. This world is not our home. And so as long as we are here, we are sojourners. Our home is in glory with the Lord. But until we arrive there, we are wanderers, travelers, and foreigners on the earth. For the rest of our days here, we will wander the earth. And that brings up a question for us. We are exiles and aliens in this world. What is our purpose for our time here? Well, this is not an easy question to answer, and the answer is one we may not like. Well, this concept of being God's beloved and yet wandering in exile, it's nothing new in redemptive history. Abraham, the father of all who believed, described himself using the same words as Peter. In Genesis 23, verse 4, Abraham said, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. He was in the promised land at the time, but it was under Hittite control. God's promise of the land would not be fulfilled until the days of Joshua hundreds of years later. But even that land was not the true fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He knew the true fulfillment of the Lord's promise would not come until glory. Therefore, Abraham had to live in a certain way while he dwelled in a foreign land. And we, too, must be willing to be different than the world around us if we are to honor God with our lives. Now, Peter gives us two main ways in which we are to live differently from the world. The first way is a negative command, while the second is a positive command. In other words, Peter's first going to tell us what not to do, and then he's going to tell us what we should do. So first, Peter negatively commands us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We cannot live like the world around us. And the implication in this command is that the world does not abstain from fleshly desires. We cannot behave as the pagans around us do. Some Christians have sought to obey this command by withdrawing into secluded places. 
hermits, convents, and other groups decided that the best way to follow this was to withdraw from society and completely separate themselves from the world. But withdrawing is not obeying this command. Furthermore, they took their sin and their issues with them into seclusion, meaning then they didn't really even escape the world in the end like they were trying. Or our status as sojourners implies that we must live among the foreigners. And when we get to the positive command, we'll also see that we have duties that can only be accomplished by living in the world. So you could argue that the command here is really two commands. First, we have to live in the world and participate in it. But second, we may not conform to the world's behavior as we live in it. So a common phrase addressing this topic is that we, as believers, must be in the world but not of it. And I think that's a fair and accurate summary of this idea. So there is a seriousness to the command to abstain from worldly sins. Of course, all sin is forbidden by Scripture and is an affront to the holiness of God. We, as his people, are to be a holy people. But as we live in the world, we are bombarded with its ideas, with its sins, with its bad philosophy. So the influence of the world can be as subtle or as questionable as bad philosophy in movies or as intense as the President of the United States announcing his support for the transgender community and putting rainbow lights across the White House. So the ways in which this world's thinking can seep into our minds are as numerous as our contacts with the world around us. And Peter warns us that these desires wage war against our souls. They fight against us like a large and a treacherous army. And the weapons they utilize are many and dangerous. The word Peter uses can also be used to describe a military campaign. There is a continuous, there is an extended battle being waged. There will never be a break, there will never be a truce in this life. As long as we live in enemy territory, we will face this war. Even if you feel secure and strong in your faith and theology, the world is still at war with you. In fact, if you think you are beyond the influence of worldly thinking, then you are in great danger here. Because it's only as you recognize that there is a war that you will fight the worldly thinking and its desires. So whether it's the sins Peter listed back in chapter 2, verse 1, or any of the other myriad of sins in the world, we must abstain from them. So that was a negative command. Second, Peter positively commands you to keep your conduct honorable. Peter isn't talking about an orchestra or a train. He was referring to the pattern of your life. What characterizes your life? Because our conduct says a lot about who we are. We call people addicted to vices addicts because their life is characterized by addiction. A thief is someone whose conduct marks him as someone who steals. Now, having those titles doesn't mean that those people are constantly high or constantly stealing. But their life is so built around those things that their reputation becomes associated with them. And we, as Christians, have to live differently. The pattern of our lives has to be respectable in the sight of others. Our conduct cannot be dishonorable. We cannot be characterized by giving in to fleshly desires. Our conduct must be honorable. So when you hear the word honorable, you may think of Victorian-era terms, Or maybe you think of how judges are introduced on TV. You know, the classic line, the Honorable Judge Smith presiding. Well, the idea 
in both the courtroom and the Victorian sense is that there is no stain on their reputation. The Victorian person is well respected and under no accusations of impropriety, and the judge is not partial or corrupt. He is just. And that really isn't too far off from what Peter is talking about here. But the word Peter uses goes beyond that. Honorable comes from a word that can also mean proper, beautiful, chiefly good, valuable, or even virtuous. So our conduct, it has to be morally upright, yes, but it also must display something beyond simply being right. Our manner of life must be visibly marked as something virtuous, valuable, and even beautiful. So to have honorable conduct is to go beyond being morally upright, to living lives that are visibly worthy. So the inner peace and love of a regenerated heart must display outward signs of that inner reality. So what is the purpose of this honorable living? Well, there are many biblical answers to that question. God's glory, our identity as believers, or simply because it has been commanded are all proper answers. But that's not how Peter answers that rhetorical question here. He again reminds us that we are sojourning among the Gentiles. And here, the purpose of our honorable lives is for the express purpose of Gentiles seeing how we live. We are to be so noticeably different that we stick out like a sore thumb among the world. The natural human inclination is to want to fit in with others. And everyone in this room, my guess, has at some point acted differently in order to fit in with one group or another. But we cannot behave like the world because we've been called by God to perform a specific duty. We're to be so different from the world around us that we might as well walk around with neon signs strapped to our heads that say honorable. So if you fit in with the world, then it's likely that you're not actually a sojourner. You can only fit in with this world if this world is your home. But if you've been truly changed by Christ, then you will live differently. And the purpose of this difference is so that the unbelieving world will have no ammo to use against us. Satan will attack us at every turn, and so will his children in the world. So Peter's command is to live upright lives so that when they accuse us of evil, there won't be a single legitimate claim against us. No valid charge of evil may be barred against us if we are walking as we should be. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be persecuted, charged falsely, or punished for holding to the truth. But in every event, there is purpose. God has a plan even through those encounters. So even as accusations are hurled at believers, Peter says that some of the unbelievers may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the idea is not that they see you on the corner one time, one day and praise God. This refers to those who know you, who have witnessed your manner of life. This is a careful study which takes place over time. So even as you are being charged with false accusations, others will see honor and beauty in your life. So pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is really the heart of the command to live honorable lives. The Lord will use your witness as a gospel testimony to the world. God can use your life as evidence of his word in order to reach and convert unbelievers to the faith. And we can see that the text is talking about converts because unbelievers, they do not praise God. And the word for glorifying God 
in verse 11, it occurs 61 times in the New Testament and never once does it refer to an unbeliever. So what we see here is the conversion of sinners through the witness of Christian living. Even the same pagans who attack and accuse Christians of horrible things can be won over by our manner of life. Those who were God-haters can be brought to life and transformed into God-lovers. Now, Peter will bring this up again in chapter 3, where he tells us that God can use the pure conduct of a godly wife to lead an unbelieving husband to the faith. The Lord is pleased to use our lives as a testimony of grace to preach the gospel. And it's a remarkable thing to know that the gospel is so thoroughly conquers our old natures that we become living and visible testimonies of God's grace. Peter tells us that the Lord is pleased to use us and evangelize and convert sinners through us. But it's not a formula for us to try to figure out and manipulate. God works as he pleases to save his elect. We see this when Peter says that the conversion and glorifying will occur on the day of visitation. Now, the timing of this day is very ambiguous. Some understand that this is the final day of judgment, which we can't completely rule out. But in the Old Testament, the day of visitation was any time that God visited his people for judgment or blessing. Furthermore, we already said this is talking about conversion. People can't repent and believe on judgment day. On that day, it's too late. So since we're talking about the conversion of sinners, I think Peter is talking about something else here. This seems to be when God visits in the sense of regenerating and redeeming Gentiles. Therefore, whenever someone has come to faith, it can rightly be said that God has visited with blessing. The blessing is their new life and conversion and then being brought into the church of Christ. What is the means God uses to bring about their faith? Your honorable conduct. So that begs an application question. Is your life characterized by honorable, virtuous, and beautiful living? Does your reputation bring honor to the Lord such that if someone came to the faith and looked back at your life, they would praise God for your life? If you profess faith in the Son of God, then your life must reflect His glory and His beauty. If it doesn't, then you don't belong to the Lord at all or you are walking in disobedience. But if you have a reputation for godliness, good. Seek to grow that reputation by abstaining from worldly passions and keeping your conduct pure. Peter urges you to be honorable. So now we have to ask another question of the text. What does it mean to have honorable conduct? What does it look like from day to day? What are the practical implications, the practical ways in which we actually live honorable lives? Well, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 11, are all going to be giving specific examples, specific commands for how to obey this. And so for the second point, we're just going to look at the first of these specific commands. So the second point is that because God is king, we must submit to authority. Verses 13 through 17. And again, that's we must submit to authority. So this is the second thing that Peter urges us to do. We must be subject to every human institution. Now, this is a command to subject ourselves to the governing authorities in our lives. And notice that the command is in the passive, which is rather confusing. We are to actively work on passively submitting to every human institution. 
So there's just a fascinating tension there, and we'll address that more in the coming weeks. Well, this same word is going to be used in chapter 2, verse 18, to command servants to be subject to their masters, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, for wives to be subject to their husbands. So whatever is true of this command here will carry the same implications for servants and wives later in the book. So this command has to do with hierarchical authority. This is not a command to do whatever anyone else tells you. You are only ever called to submit to those in a legitimate position of authority over you. And we are all commanded to submit to every human institution. And notice that Peter doesn't command the government to subject us through tyranny or force. And we'll see this concept more in chapter 3 where the husband is not told to make his wife submit, but to be understanding and to show honor. So the command is for us to obey as subjects. We must choose to submit and obey authority rather than choosing to disobey or rebel. Rebellion and disobedience, they come naturally to sinful people. We are individualistic, we are control-seeking, and we are in a society that is wholly anti-authoritarian. But thinking and acting in that way is not honorable conduct, says Peter. It's living like the world. So to rebel in that way is a failure to abstain from fleshly conduct. We must choose to obey those in authority. And the reason Peter gives us to do so is rather hard to argue with. We are to be subject to those authorities for the Lord's sake or on account of the Lord. The main reason Peter gives us to be subject to earthly authorities has nothing to do with them and everything to do with Christ. They carry authority because the Lord gave them authority. Even those we may deem as unworthy of our respect and obedience have been put in place by God. So if the Lord has placed them there, who will remove them? If God has placed them in authority and commanded our obedience, then to disobey or overthrow is to resist God himself. The Lord is the one who sets up and topples leaders and governments. Just read through the prophets and you'll see how God used the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and even the Romans to perform his purposes. And yet through all those regime changes and times of discipline for Israel, the command of God was always the same. Walk by faith and be subject to the rulers placed over you. And really our call today is no different. We serve the Lord, not man. But to serve the Lord, we must also serve those he has placed in authority. And so when we find it difficult to submit to our rulers, we have to remember we serve God, not man. If we had perfect, godly leaders on this earth, then this command would be easy. And really, Peter probably wouldn't even need to command it at all. But leaders are often far from godly. I'm just going to be honest with you here. This is where the rebel in me, the rebel in my heart, has a lot of trouble here. Peter commands us to obey every human institution. In this passage, he gives us no out. He says to be subject to the emperor and the governors sent by him. So by listing the supreme earthly ruler in Rome and the local regional Roman leaders, Peter is including all legitimate authority of government. Now, we can't decide to only obey our local leaders or only our federal or vice versa. And as I said, I really struggle with this command. Surely if Peter knew how bad our leaders and our government are, he wouldn't have commanded this, right? Well, unfortunately for that argument, 
Peter and the early church had it far worse than we do. They were living under the control of the Roman Empire. Now, were the Roman emperors good guys from what you all know? No, they were immoral, they were pagan, they were power-hungry tyrants. And many of them were severely mentally ill on top of all their other evils. You had Caligula, which is one of the hallmarks of evil leaders of Rome. And the Emperor Nero was just about at the same level of being messed up as Caligula. Peter wrote this letter during the reign of Emperor Nero. And the irony is that Peter could give this command during the reign of one of the most wicked Roman emperors ever. And what's even more ironic is that not long after Peter wrote the book of 2 Peter, he would be crucified upside down. And his crucifixion took place under Nero's persecution of Christians. But even before he knew that, even when he wrote this, Peter was not under any delusions about Nero's character. And yet he gives no exceptions to this command to be subject to the emperor. In the same way, Peter lists governors as those we must be subject to. The governors, though, were not much better than the emperors. Who was Jesus Christ crucified under? Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor. But rather than forming a rebellion or giving an exception, Peter says, be subject to your governors. So despite our feelings towards either level of authority, Peter says they have a God-given purpose to perform. Human institutions are put in place by God to punish evil and to praise good. They are to keep order and perform justice. They are to punish evil. True justice has to be carried out by governments and not vigilantes. Furthermore, the authorities are said to punish and avenge. Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans 13. There, Paul says that the government wields the sword as a servant of God to avenge and carry out his wrath on wickedness. This is the main duty of any government to punish evil and uphold justice. And part of why this passage is so convicting to me is that our government does a pretty poor job of this duty. Our justice system is not built around avenging and punishing, but rehabilitation. Now, Scripture nowhere mentions rehabilitating criminals as justice. Justice is retribution and punishment that repays evil and deters more. Governmental justice is lex talionis, an eye for an eye. You wonder why crime is escalating in most of the country and repeat offenders are in and out of the rotating door of the local prison. Well, look no further than a justice system built on an entirely unbiblical model of justice. Therefore, since our country often fails to perform justice, are they illegitimate? Does this command still apply? Peter gives no exceptions in this passage. Even the wicked nations have their authority from God. Even the most flawed governments restrain some level of evil. Because if nothing else, they prevent anarchy, which in Scripture is an even greater evil. So while Peter does not give us any exceptions... There had already been one given and practiced before he ever wrote this letter. Back in Acts 5, the apostles were preaching the gospel when the Jewish religious leaders arrested them and questioned them and ordered them to stop preaching the gospel. Well, Peter, acting as the spokesperson for the apostles, replied, we must obey God rather than men. Because God never requires us to obey commands that go against his word. We are to obey governing authorities in everything unless it goes against God's word. 
If we're told we cannot gather for worship, we must obey God rather than men. If we're told we have to affirm sin or gender dysphoria, we must obey God rather than men. If I am told to stop preaching or face jail time, I must obey God rather than men. And this is the one exception in Scripture. And it is the exception and not the norm. Meaning any other time where we're not called to go against the word of God, we must be subject to every human institution. Now, why would Peter command this? What is the purpose of submitting to all rulers, even wicked ones? Peter says that it is because it is the will of God that we obey. Now, we could stop there and we could leave it at that. Because who can resist the will of God? But Peter tells us the reason why it's God's will. By our obedience to the authorities, we will do good in the eyes of the world. Evil men will bring accusations and try to malign our reputations, but when cross-examined, their schemes will show through. The call is for us to give no valid ground for any real accusation. So with no evidence, the mouth of fools accusing us will be silenced. So going back to something we've already talked about, we will shine as gospel billboards in a dark world. We will stand out as good citizens and godly believers. And this is the will of God for our submission. An objection to submitting to authority is that we've been free by, free by Christ. Wait, if we're free, why do we have to submit? We're free from tyranny. But in verse 16, Peter rejects the possibility of using our freedom as an excuse to ignore authority. He says to live as people who are free. Now, the word live there is actually a reference back to the command to be subject. So that the the idea is that you must be subject as a people who are free. Well, that may seem like a bit of a contradiction, but it actually isn't. We often think of freedom in America in the full libertarian sense that you can just do whatever you want. Well, Scripture never allows or teaches that sort of freedom. Only God is fully free, but even he limits himself to act only according to his holy nature. In the Bible, being free means that you are free from sin and death. But gospel freedom never ends there. It goes on. It says full freedom enables you to desire that which is good. So it's rescue from bondage to sin and it's being set on a path towards being able to choose good. Therefore, biblical freedom is not being free from authority, but being free to do good and to obey. All authority. It means having the freedom to choose to submit and obey all authority, knowing that all authority comes from God. So that is why Peter commands us not to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We are not freed so we can practice license. We are not freed from sin to indulge in the passions of the flesh. We are freed in order to do good. We are freed from sin in order to willingly submit to governing authorities. And in so doing, we will shine as light and model citizens. No one should ever be able to bring a charge of actual evil against the saints. We are to be living, breathing gospel representations everywhere we go. And that even includes in how we submit to the government. We must be law-abiding model citizens. But what does all that have to do with evangelism? Well, Peter wants us to understand how submission and evangelism connect. Preaching the gospel is the most important duty of the believer. And that's the purpose of all these commands in this section going all the way through chapter 4. We may be tempted to breeze past this section and to ignore it. 
but it has tremendous importance for the witness of the church. What we're really talking about is the practical way in which we evangelize and preach the gospel. Well, Peter summarizes this section on how to live as evangelizing sojourners with four commands. First, he says we are to honor everyone. Now, as we already noted, we're talking about hierarchical relationships in this section. We're not to be subject to authority and then treat all others however we want, like dirt. We are called to treat even our equals and inferiors well. But notice that the command is neither to obey nor to rule over everyone else. We are to honor all people, regardless of who they are, as our equals. And the reasons for this command are many. All men, even the ones we don't like, are made in the image of God. As such, they have inestimable worth and value as reflectors of God's image. We are commanded to honor them, which is also enough of a reason in and of itself. But we also honor all people because by doing so, we open the door for good relationships by which we may share the gospel with others. So given that evangelism through our manner of life is the focus of this section, I would argue that's the primary reason on Peter's mind for this command, that we might open the door for evangelism through good relationships. Well, second, Peter commands us to love the brotherhood. Now, to love is a much stronger word than to honor. We're to honor all people, but we are to especially love other believers. There's a bond with other saints that we will never have with anyone else outside the faith. We've all been united by one spirit into the one body of Christ. You have to honor all, but you absolutely must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And one way in which you may love your brothers and sisters in Christ is to have a good reputation and gospel testimony through holy living and submission to those in authority. Because the world will see that. They will see our unity in love. They will see our submission. Third, Peter tells us to fear God. Now, this is the greatest and the strongest of these commands. Fearing the Lord is not a command to live in terror or trepidation. This is a reverence, devotion, uh, and honor and awe, sense of awe towards God and His holiness. The fear of the Lord is pure and is clean. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to walk, to fear the Lord is to walk humbly with your God. And while this is listed third by Peter, this is the most important command. It is the command on which the other three in this final list depend. And only as we fear the Lord will we be able to honor all people, love the brothers, and have the strength to follow the final command. Fourth, Peter commands us to honor the emperor. So while listed last, this is not the strongest of the four commands. The command is to honor the emperor, which matches how we are to treat all people. We start and we end this list with honoring while the strong command to, to fear and to love are in the middle. And it's no accident that Peter places this order just after the command to fear the Lord. There's a contrast being made there. While we are to honor the emperor and obey him, he is not the final authority. In ancient Rome, the emperor cult was very popular. The Caesars were deified and they were worshipped as gods. Peter, no doubt, experienced the influence of these groups. And unlike what many Romans may have said, we are not to fear the emperor. We fear the Lord alone. And this matches what Jesus has already told in the Gospels. Luke 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, 
and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are we to honor every human institution? Yes. But we fear God alone because even emperors and kings are just humans in the end. They may have the power to persecute Christians and even kill us, but they will never have power over our souls. So Peter wants us to both obey and submit to our government leaders while at the same time knowing that they are just men who will one day have to answer to the Lord for how they used that authority. Let's conclude. We began with the proposition that because God is king, we must evangelize. We then walked through two points, that because God is king, we must be honorable and submit to authority. So much like why parents give their children chores for multiple purposes, the Lord's commands have numerous purposes and results. Our Heavenly Father, He knows just what we need. So He forbids us from doing things that could hurt us in the church while commanding things that will grow us in the church. We may not always like submitting to authority, but the Lord has commanded us to submit to every human institution. He is the one who places and removes every leader. He always has a purpose in everything that he does. And one way in which we must serve Christ is to submit to authority. But I'll be honest, we may be persecuted as a result for that. But if God can use it to spread the gospel, then there is a higher purpose. Do you want to serve the Lord? Do you want to live an honorable life worthy of praise? Follow these commands from Peter. Walk in such a way that you seek to please your Lord in all you do, even when it's difficult to do so. Because God's word is what builds the church and changes hearts. So saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you walk in obedience to the Lord, you are the embodiment of the gospel to the world. And for that reason, you need to pray for yourself and this church that we would carry the gospel message forward every day by our obedience to the Lord for his sake. Let's pray. Lord God, our hearts are naturally rebellious, not only against the world, not only against the rulers of this age, but against you. It's only as you have worked in our hearts, it's only as you have transformed us and brought us into your church that we may choose to do that which is good, that we may choose to follow and submit our lives to you. Lord, we confess even as believers, even as redeemed saints, it can be hard to follow these commands. So Lord, give us the strength we need and the conviction we need that we might honor our leaders, not following them into evil, not approving of evil, standing up for the truth, but at the same time, where the truth is not at stake to submit ourselves, not for them, but for you. Lord, move through us, present the gospel clearly through our lives. Build us up in holiness. For this is what you have called us to, but this is also what you have given us your spirit to enable us to do. Lord, build us up in this, we pray. Amen.